of you guys know this about me, but running is not my favorite. I have run many times in my life, sometimes for fun, when I was little and didn't know any better. And there have been other times that I ran because I was made to run, like those PE teachers in elementary school and, and middle school, junior high. Um, sometimes I've run for my life. Don't, don't even ask about those. There's a couple that just are going to stay buried. You don't want to know. Um, it's one of the big reasons. I mean, I can honestly say I, I've never run for fun. Never. Never have I run for fun, nor have I had any ambition to be uh, a running athlete, uh, of, especially of Olympic caliber. There's just nothing in me that wants or desires that. Um, and it's one of the big reasons I'm so curious about what drives people who do want that, because I just can't relate. I can't understand why a person would want to run. Um, but... I do stand in amazement at people who do run and who do run well. And, and I, I was just thinking, thinking again this week, uh, coming back off vacation, uh, was looking at some video of Usain Bolt. You know, it took less than 10 seconds for, for this Jamaican sprinter to cover a 100-meter distance on an Olympic track and win the gold medal in London. Wow. Like, I think it was 9.58 seconds is what I found is the actual time for the 100-meter. He ran it in less than 10 seconds. Those few seconds cemented his status as the fastest man alive, placed him on the winner's podium. But the race, here's what you got to understand. And th this is the thing. This is why I don't like running, okay? The race was not won in those less than 10 seconds. The race was won by the hours and hours of practice and workouts and weightlifting and special dieting and coaching. That's where the race was run, right? The, the race was not won in the performance. The race was won in the preparation. And, and so the key to all of, of it is, is the word priority. It's, what, what, what were you saying, Bolt's priorities? What are our priorities? A priority is a thing that's regarded as more important than another. That's about as simple as the definition gets. In our determination to live life according to our wishes, our wants, our desires, some things inevitably take precedent. They take priority over other things, right? And so, this is a function and reflection of our value system as, as people. Uh, I, was, I was looking at the book uh, not too long ago, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I, I tend to stay away from those books because they just aggravate me, right? Because I just re I read the first half of the book and I'm like, no, forget it. I'm never going to, right? Just give up. Just... Uh, um, here's, but here's what Stephen Covey pens in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He, he says, you have to decide what your highest priorities are and then have the courage pleasantly, smilingly, unapologetically to say no to other things. Amen. That, I, I don't like those books, but that speaks to my heart. You have to say no to other things. And then he goes on to say this. And the way that you do that is by having a bigger yes 
burning inside you. There's, there's a, you get to say yes to something else that's greater than, is what he's saying. The enemy of best is often good. And so by their very nature, priorities are something that we set in advance. If we wait until we're in the moment, in the crucible of making the decision, we typically don't keep them in the first place. And just as important as the practice of prioritizing itself is, is what we prioritize. It's, it's the what, right? And, and, we're, and here we are in the month of May, and I can look back and see, I, I'm just thinking of an example. I, I can look back and see the impact of what we've decided to do this year in reading through the Bible together. It's been amazing. It's been amazing. I had some, when we were on vacation in Westport, I had some catching up to do. I don't know. Like if you, sometimes you fall behind. It's like I, I got to catch up on my Bible reading for that week. And, and man, it's, it's some weeks I have to catch up a little bit, but it's, it's so important to this issue of priorities because God's word is our priority. It shapes all other priorities in our lives accordingly. And so as we, we get into the texts this morning that we're going to look at here in the Gospels, um, this is really important uh, because we're going to see two very clear examples of how this idea of priorities impacts the lives of people in real time. See, God's word must, must shape our priorities as the people of God. And so let's, let's look at the text this morning. We're in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 42. And you'll be very familiar, likely very, very familiar with these texts this morning. It says, uh, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, putting Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And the question was, what must I do to inherit or to, to gain eternal life? And Jesus answers that. In order to be saved, he needs to keep God's law. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time at all, you're going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not how we're saved. What does Jesus say? How are you saved? By keeping God's law. I'm going somewhere with this. Don't, don't get too worried. I'm trying to build a little bit of anticipation and worry so that I can release it later, but just sit on it right now, okay? And so, and so Jesus answers, in order to be saved, this, this lawyer needs to keep the law. The law is summarized in the Shema of Israel. Shema means, it's the word that means hear. And it's the uh, it's the Hebrew word that begins the most important prayer in Judaism. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 4, begins this with a command to hear. Here's the whole Shema prayer from Deuteronomy 6 uh, that is spoken daily in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish tradition. Here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, basically all the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God is saying, keep my word ever before you, ever before you. And if you're a Bible-believing, born-again Christian, something still doesn't sit right because he said, keep the law. It's just like gnawing at me. He says, well, what must I do to be saved? Keep the law. I mean, when you stop and examine how Jesus affirms the lawyer, it starts to seem like Jesus is telling the man that he can gain eternal life by keeping the law of God. And he's right. You can. If you can keep it all. And never violate it even once. It's a true statement. It's a true statement. If one can keep God's law, then they can receive eternal life. The problem is there are none righteous. There are none righteous. See, Paul comes along later and he, he gives us clarity on this problem that there are none righteous. In Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. Some of you are breathing a little easier now that we got to that passage. Say, like, whoa, is he giving us a work salvation message? No, I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Making sure you're still breathing air, right? See, the lawyer, the lawyer in this passage has chosen a way of salvation that no person can ever attain. Save Jesus himself, but Jesus was without, without sin, so he didn't need salvation. He's the very son of God, but Jesus is salvation. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is Romans 3 again, verse 23 to 25. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, here's a big word, ready? Propitiation, okay? He put Jesus forward as the propitiation, as the sacrifice that took our place to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. If he hadn't passed over former sins, the first generation of people would all have been killed and there'd be none of us. And so he's passed over, okay, uh, saving the punishment, the due punishment for sin until a person dies. It, it, that's when the fullness comes. Now, I don't know if you know this, but you read the New Testament, you will see there, well, Old Testament too, there are times when people sin and they start to experience in this lifetime some of the penalties and consequences of that. Yeah. It's not good. But, you, you, but death is when you get the full package. And you either get the full package of the recompense of God for your sins, or you stand before him in grace, having repented of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. And so for this lawyer, he was bought into this works-based system that had developed in Israel. They had lost sight of the fact that God was sending a lamb 
to be the sacrifice of mankind. And this goes all the way back to Abraham and, and beyond, right? And, and instead of putting their hope and their faith in a future promise, they were settling for salvation by works instead. But, but this lawyer, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, so who's my neighbor? Clearly had not watched Mr. Rogers very much. I miss Fred Rogers. This is what happens when you make a God to suit yourself instead of coming in humility to the one true and living God. You end up justifying yourself, okay? When it is God who wants to justify you, he wants to wash you clean. He wants to hide you behind the cross, having been washed in his precious blood. And the lawyer isn't asking who is my neighbor, so that he can go and serve them, so that he can go and love them, so that he can go and tell them about Jesus and salvation in Jesus. He isn't asking that. He's asking so that he can excuse himself from having to love those who are unlovely. How many times have we done that? How many times have I done that? We, we want to justify ourselves. We want to excuse ourselves. I know what the Bible says, but, but I just, this, this one particular person just, oh, oh just aggravate. And Jesus is like, yeah, I love him. Oh. And, if, and then if you, if, you get, if you get really still and you get attentive to the voice of God, even in your frustration about that person, you know that person. You know, we, we have those people, right? And, and, and God says, you know what? I put up with you. It hurts, but it's good. It's good medicine, right? He, he's trying to, this law, he's trying to excuse himself from having to love the unlovely. So he asked the question, well, <laughs> well okay, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus. And that's a question that every single one of us ought to be asking ourselves every day. Not to excuse ourselves, but to engage. Right? The command to love one's neighbor as oneself comes from Leviticus 19.18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The Jews of Jesus' day would largely have understood their neighbor to be their fellow Israelites right? But God had a broader definition. Loving one's neighbor is more than simply loving those who are like us and who will love us in return. I love people that love me. Don't you? I love people that love me. I have a hard time with people that don't. And yet God says, love them anyway. Love them with the love of Jesus. If you can't, if you don't have the love of, of you enough, to, then, then ask Jesus to put some love in you for that person. That's, that's what he wants for us. And so there's, this, there's also this word here. And I don't know if you saw it in verse 29. There's a word here that we need to address before we go any further into the text. The word in the text is justified, okay? And, and when we speak about God saving sinners, there are three parts to salvation. I don't know if you are familiar with the theology of salvation, but um, so we, we talk about when you first put your faith in Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, and we put our faith in him to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins, then we are 
justified. And here's what I want you to do with that word. If you can see it in your mind, justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. It's just as if I'd never sinned in God's sight. When we're justified by God, it's, 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 like, it's like a complete do-over. Start again. Once a person is justified by faith in God alone, faith in Jesus Christ, the door is immediately open for him or her to live the Christian life with the Holy Spirit indwelling them. That's what happens when a person says, I'm putting my faith in you. I want salvation. I surrender myself and my life to you. You are God and I am not. I need to be saved. Then you are justified. And then being justified before God, which is a forensic reality, right? It's that you are, God sees you as clean and he sees Christ in you. It doesn't mean that your actual sin magically dissipates into the air because we still struggle with sin, but we're forensically justified before God. And then that opens the door because the Holy Spirit comes into us and begins the process of making us sanctified, right? This is, this is where the Holy Spirit comes in and starts to work on us and, and, and teach us about holiness. And, and we start having more angst about the sin in our lives that we didn't even see before. Like, I didn't even know that was a bad thing. And I kind of like it. I don't want to give it up. And, and the, the Lord says, no, no, do it now. Do it now. And, and you got you to work through that, right? So, so, then, so then we're being sanctified. And sanctus is the Latin word for holy. So, so God justifies us. And then, he, then he's, we're in the process of him making us holy. And the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you and, and, and with you and actually make you holy over the rest of your life on earth. Did you know that that process never stops as long as you're breathing air? It's like, when am I going to get to holiness? When you're dead, because then, <laughs> then you're going to be glorified. There's three parts of salvation, justified, sanctified, glorified, right? And so when we get to the presence of God, we will be glorified in his presence. When that meat pump that in your chest that runs on Chick-fil-A, that runs on Jesus food, maybe that's autobiographical. Uh, I don't know what y'all are eating, um, but when, when that meat pump stops pumping, you're going to stand in the actual presence of God himself and be welcomed into glory. And you're going to be transformed into, a, into glory. And I don't even know how to describe that. But back, back to the text, this lawyer wants to be justified before God. And, and he doesn't, I mean, for, for what he does, because of what he doesn't do and what he does do for God. And, and aren't you proud of me, God? He doesn't realize he can't keep God's law. That's always the point of the law, by the way. That was always the point, was to show people, especially Israel, that they couldn't do it in their flesh. They couldn't do it on their own. So we need the mercy and grace of God. And the lawyer's looking for an out here in this conversation. He's asked the question. He answers the question, rather, with a question, right? Jesus asked him a question. He answers with a question, says, well, okay, so who's my neighbor? He's actually a really good lawyer. <laughs> in the sense that he's playing on the minutia and the technicalities of the law. But Jesus is not going to let it slide. So he tells him a story because that's what Jesus does. Jesus says, verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, one of the people who work in the temple and worship God day and night, here comes a Levite. And when he came to the place and saw this man, he passed on the other side. Now, we pretty regularly demonize these two men. But in truth, nothing in life is 100% evil or 100% good except God and Satan, right? <laughs> there are some things about the religious leaders of Israel at that time that I think are commendable. And it'd be good for us just to think about this for just a moment. Even though these, these men have passed by, they have, they have forsaken the law. They have not obeyed the law of God in this moment. But, but there are some things here about these groups of people that are commendable. They, they were zealous for God. They were zealous in a way that probably you and I are not. We have not attained to that level of zealousness when it comes to God. Um, they wanted to bring every area of their lives into subjection to the truth of the word of God. Uh, and I have a hard time finding Christians about whom I can say those things, especially, especially when I'm looking in the mirror. They believed in the supernatural and they believed in the resurrection of the dead. That's commendable. But they were proud men with a very pronounced sense of moral superiority. And that is the creeping nature of pride, moral superiority. But here in the text, as Jesus is continuing with the story, he says, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, one of those half-breeds that peeled off from Israel and built their own false temple and started their own false worship of God. One of those guys, as he journeyed, one of the Samaritans came to where this man was. And when he saw him, he didn't cross by on the other side. He had compassion. The Samaritan had compassion. Jesus says, yeah, he, he went to him and bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. The oil would have acted as a, as a soothing agent, the wine as a, as a disinfectant on those wounds. He bound him up, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then the next day, so the guy spent the night in the room with a cold compress trying to, trying to save this guy's life. And then the next day he took out two denarii, that's, that's, a, that's a whole day's wages, denarii, and gave this to the innkeeper and said, look, take care of him. And whatever you spend, I'll, I'll repay you when I come back. I find this so interesting because Jesus takes an unexpected turn with this story. The person least likely to be featured positively in a story about being a good neighbor, a good neighbor, and in a story about honoring the image of God in another person you'd think would be a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a priest or a Levite, one of the religious leaders of Israel. And yet Jesus chooses a Samaritan. A Samaritan. That's incredible. And, and this is a really, there's a really good possibility, having, having looked at this all week and researched, that this is the telling of an actual event. 
Now, I know a lot of people say it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. The word parable never appears in the text of Scripture regarding this story. Never. It's the telling of a story. Now, whether or not the story was an actual event, we can debate that. I, I kind of, because of the details, um, I kind of lean toward it being an actual telling of an actual event, not just some made-up anecdote for the sake of an illustration. It's not like Jesus to attribute such flagrant sins to his enemies without warrant. And I think that the fact that the lawyer is the one who's asking the question and putting Jesus to the test, that's very likely an incident that actually occurred and maybe even one that the lawyer would have been familiar with or have heard of. But I would just say as, as the church in America experiencing the crumbling of Western civilization, we really need to approach this incident with fresh eyes so many of us have read this. We've heard this so many times, so many times. It's just become rote to us, and we miss some of the very interesting aspects of what actually happened here. If, if we were going to seek out a modern equivalent to this incident, it would likely include a mugging with gunshot uh, wounds or stab wounds to the victim. No one from that block in that neighborhood wants to help, wants to come forward or even talk to the police. Just leave us alone. We don't want any part of that. They turn their backs. They don't want to get tangled up in any of this. But the guy who's been gunned down, he's bleeding out, right? So the, the Samaritan loads him into his own new car, brand new, gets blood all over himself, blood all over the interior of the brand new car. That leather interior is ruined now. He speeds to the hospital as the man continues to moan, going in and out of consciousness, still bleeding out profusely. And the doctors rush this man into the, the ER, but the hospital quickly discovers that the man has no insurance and he's all out of money. He's, he's got, he, it's all gone. It was all taken in the mugging. So the Samaritan who's brought him to the hospital steps in. He, this hated and estranged, uh, estranged from religious life of Israel, this, this half Jew despised by the Jews offers to pay for the surgeries and the time spent in the hospital for recovery and the medications needed out of his own pocket. That's incredible. Have you ever heard of, the, of a person doing such a thing? Add, add back into the story the ethnic hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. This is astounding. This is incredible. First and foremost, the Samaritan had compassion on this man when nobody else in the story did. He went to him when most, if not all, of the pious and religious Jews wouldn't even touch this guy with a 10-foot pole. This ethnic outcast loved this Jew enough that he ministered to his wounds and bound them up. He poured in oil, oil and wine. It's just incredible to me. It's not as if the Samaritan only offered the donkey on the condition that he didn't have to touch the man or get him up onto the animal, right? It's not like that. No, this, this, this person was incapacitated and bloodied, half dead, according to Jesus, which means the Samaritan would have had to pick him up and lift him onto the animal, lift him up onto the donkey, deal with getting blood all over himself, which means now he's ceremonially unclean. Probably have to help steady the man all the way down the road as the donkey carried him so that he didn't fall off again because he's in and out of consciousness. And in all of this, he's willing to endure all of that to help 
a perfect stranger, someone that that culture hated. The two people who encountered this scene prior to the Samaritan simply passed by. They just simply passed by. As followers of God and being in the priestly line of Israelites, they should have known, they should have obeyed the law of God. Here are, I would just pull out a few excerpts of what God's law says about situations like this one. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, ah, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you. What did the, what did the priest, what did the Levite do? They said, ah, no, I'm not going to get involved in this. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they've done. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 58, verses nine and 10, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of the finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will shine and will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. I'll, give you, I'll just give you one more. Proverbs 29, 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor. The wicked don't have any concern. They don't even care. There are two Jews in this tale and one half-breed Samaritan. Both the Jews are from the priestly line and they should have known God's law better. They should have obeyed God's law. But they didn't. They failed to show any love to this fellow Israelite who was beaten despite him being their own blood, their own people. And instead, it's the Samaritan so greatly disdained, so deeply hated, who stopped to care for the injured man, who demonstrated compassion for one who would have considered him an enemy. And so Jesus asked the question in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. See, this is the thing about Jesus that just aggravates me so much. He'd say, go home and think about that and let it just be part of your knowledge base from now on. No, he said, go and, what's the word? Do likewise. It's not enough to know truth. The Bible tells us we have to do truth. We have to embrace truth. We have to let truth live in us and live through us and, and manifest itself in what we do, not merely what we say. Go and do this. Go, Jesus is saying, and live like this. Live like this. Help people. Love people. Now remember, this story is being told by Jesus to a lawyer who's asked that follow-up question, who's my neighbor? And we have to remember as we listen to Jesus's answer that there's a lot of bigotry. There's a lot of ethnic hatred among the Israelites. And, and I very intentionally phrase it that way because I want to just make sure that we think about it in terms of ethnic uh, disdain instead of racial hatred. And here's the reason that I say that. I just want to clear this up because there's no such thing as race. And so there's no such thing as racism, okay? This is, it's, it's not the, the, the tensions 
uh, and, and all this is adopted uh, and is embracing a false worldview of Darwinian evolution. Okay? There's no such thing. In, in that view of Darwinian evolution, mankind is just a cosmic accident anyway. We are dust plus time plus chance. That's all we are. We, we are the result of time plus chance. We're nothing more than stardust, a cosmic accident. And that necessarily means that neither you or I have any, any inherent worth or value. None. None. There's none. In that worldview, there's no inherent worth. Man's, mankind's just a cosmic accident. We're, we're, it's, it's incredible that people believe that worldview. We're nothing more than stardust. Uh, on evolution, we're simply time plus chance plus dumb luck. We have no intrinsic value. We're not better than any of the animals. We're not better than amoebas. We might be a little bit smarter than amoebas. I don't know. I've met some amoebas. I, I, you, I reject that worldview, by the way, and you should too. You and I are made in the image of God. We have intrinsic value and worth being special creations of God himself, right? It's, it's, not, it's not the Darwinian view. It's not that worldview. This, this section of Luke's gospel is about eternal life um, when you read through Luke's gospel and, and ultimately um, answering to God himself. And, and so this, this lawyer here is looking for the workaround, He's looking for that back door, and there isn't one. <laughs> there, there, there isn't one. Not then, not now. There is a door, and his name is Jesus, John 10, 7. One who believes the gospel, according to Hebrews eleven six, 6, and repents of sin, is assured of having entered in by the door. And, and, the, and the word says that that person now has fellowship with Jesus. And my question to you this morning is, have you entered into relationship with God through the door of Jesus Christ? As I'd love to talk to you if you haven't. I'd love to buy your lunch this week or coffee and talk about that. So, so I just want to wrap up this section of the text here. Um, and this is a, feels like a really disjointed sermon. You'll see in a moment. But in this section of the text, there's a question posed to all of us, you and me. And it is this. If God can use a person who's still in a false religion, who worships a false, at a false temple, comes from a sinful culture filled with pride and hatred to demonstrate love and concern for someone in need, can he use you? I mean, here's God using the Samaritan cult follower. Can God use you? Are you available to be used? Sit on that for a minute. As it brings us to the next section of the text, because we're going on in verse 38. As they went on their way, Jesus was walking. It says, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister's left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. I, just, I hear that through a Southern accent because I grew up in a house. <laughs> right? I, tell, tell him to get up and help me right now. So Jesus has left the place of the encounter with the lawyer. He's now come to the house of Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. But did you catch verse 40 there? 
Did you catch it? Martha was distracted with much serving. It's like, I know I, I can just drop with much serving and, and just keep Pastor Mike was distracted because that happens to me all the time. Can you relate to that? As someone who's in process, as someone who's being sanctified, longing to be glorified, I want to encourage you to parse down the distractions in your life, whatever they are. And it might take some time and prayer and even just just to identify what those are. But once you do, please don't be afraid to, to let go of that which keeps you from Jesus and keeps you from the word of God. It might cost you some temporal things in this life, but you will be so glad that you made the trade, both now and in glory. You'll be glad that you made that trade. Verse 41, the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus is in the house. She just wants to sit and listen to Jesus. And her sister's like, get up, get up. Help me in the kitchen. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Don't, no, no, no. She's chosen the good portion. And we're not going to take that away. There is a person in my life who exemplifies Mary in verses 41 and 42. And it's really challenging to me because I am very much a Martha. Can I just say that? I'm a Martha. Is that a thing? Did we just create a new like category? No. Okay. All right. I'm <laughs> sorry. Easily distracted. Easily distracted. In, in fact, like reading through the Bible this year has been so challenging at points for this reason, because I'm easily distracted. Oh, I'll go, I'll go mow grass. Oh, I, the dog needs to go. There's right. so all these reasons why it's like focus, focus, be with the Lord, invest in the better thing, right? Invest in the better thing. Reading through the Bible. Um, but I hope and pray that God would help me to be less in the flesh doing things for Jesus at the expense of, of being with Jesus, right? I, I love to do things for Jesus and for the kingdom, and I struggle to be with him and just sit and listen and let him speak to me in his word. We could all do with more of that. So let's wrap up as we explore how this applies to us. So here we go. We're coming out of Last week's message, right? There were some really challenging statements from Jesus just before he appointed the 12 disciples and sent them out in pairs. And as he did that, there was a warning uh, uh, that the rejection of Jesus, the very incarnate son of God, that rejection of men on Jesus would carry a weight of sin greater than that which is attributed to Sodom and Gomorrah. It would have been, he says, it would have been better for them, Right? It'll be worse for those who reject Jesus than to have been in Sodom. But he also told his disciples that they are blessed to be seeing and experiencing all of these things. And we know, though they didn't at that time, that this is leading to the crucifixion. This is leading to the, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. We, we have the, the, the uh, privilege of seeing what's coming beforehand. And so the story of the lawyer who debated with Jesus is a cautionary tale for us because sometimes we're so set on our own ways 
right? That we end up debating God to make our point and try to justify ourselves. It's crazy. But, but you and I don't have the standing, the wit, the intellect, the prowess, the glorious knowledge and insight needed to even begin to mount an assault on his perfection. But we sure do try anyway, don't we? <laughs> From the lawyer, we heard the question, what must I do to have eternal life? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? How are you and I like this lawyer? So I want you to take away this morning. How are we like this lawyer? We read this and we go, what a jerk. I, I can be that jerk. How are you and I like this lawyer? Well, we're prone to self-justification. We want knowledge, but not obedience. But Jesus wants to be the source of our justification. And he wants us to seek to walk in obedience above the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. Again, how are you and I like Martha? Well, we look at, we, we work and we labor in the flesh instead of resting in the Lord. We choose activity and busyness rather than sitting at the feet of the master. But Jesus wants us to rest in him instead of striving in the flesh. He wants us to choose the better thing himself rather than being constantly distracted with the things of this world. If any of this is frustrating you or, or is an insult and affront or, or a frustration to you, then I just want to say to you this morning, good. It offends me too. It offends my flesh deeply. And I've had to wrestle with it all week because I've been preparing to say it. And now you get to wrestle with it too. It, it's offending to my flesh. Don't let religion or duty keep you from what is truly important. Prioritize humility and love and draw near to Jesus. These have to be our chief priorities if we're going to follow Christ and walk as he walked and love people the way he loved people. And as I think about that, I was drawn to 1 Corinthians 13 again this week. And so I just want to read this passage to you as we, as we work towards closing here. 1 Corinthians 13, just listen to how Paul words this by the Holy Spirit. This is so good. He says, look, if I, if I can speak in the tongues of men, if I, if, I, if I know like 17 languages and can also speak angelic languages, like angels come down and we just, whatever it is, right? I, I, I can do all that, but I don't love, I, I don't have love. I, I'm, I'm just a noisy gong. I'm just a clanging cymbal. All the sounds coming out of my mouth don't mean anything. They don't add value to anything. And if I have all prophetic powers, I can see into the future of God's uh, design and, and he's given me insight as to what's coming and I understand all mysteries and I understand knowledge. And if I have all faith so that I can even remove mountains, I can say to, I can say to a mountain, move, and it moves. But, it, but I don't have love. I'm nothing. I'm I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, deliver my body up to be burned, but I don't have love, I, I gain nothing. So he says, let me, let me tell you what love is actually like. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. Oh, I hate that one. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Actually, I'm starting to hate all of these. Oh, it's just, uh, it's not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. And just to give us a juxtaposition of a different view here, he says, as for prophecies, and I love prophecy. Man, I'm excited about prophecy. He says, that's going to cease. It's going to pass away. Because we're going to come to the end of prophecy. Because no eye has seen and no, no ear has heard what God has in store for us. We, we can't even write about it. We don't know about it. We're just going to experience it. But all the prophecy is going to stop at some point. It's going to cease. And knowledge, it's going to pass away. For, for what we know, we're so smart, aren't we? We're so smart. We, what we know, we only know in part. And what we prophesy, we only prophesy in part because we, can't, we, don't, know. we, don't, know the, we don't know all of it. But when the perfect comes, when Jesus comes, that partial stuff is going to pass away. He says, it's like this. When I was a little kid, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. How many of you have little children in the house or have had little? Yeah, it's not always easy to logically reason with a child because they reason like a child. Because when I was a child, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I grew up and became a man, I, I, I put away childish, <coughs> put away childish ways. For now, we see as if we're looking in a dim mirror that hasn't been cleaned in like a decade. We can't quite see, kind of see the shapes and kind of see, but not really, right? We're looking through a mirror dimly, but when we're with the Lord, it'll be face to face. For now, we see as a mirror dimly, and then we'll be face to face. Now I know in part, I, I, I kind of know, I know God, but not wholly, just partially because I can't, this body can't contain the information or the glory, <laughs> like I, I know partially, but when we're going to fo fully know him, right? we're going to know him face to face. N now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Can you, have you ever just stopped to think about what it's going to be like to know God fully? Like I, I've been married to Jen for 23 years, and, and I feel like I'm still getting to know her in some ways. And unfortunately, she's discovering who I am um, in the process as well. But it's, it's, that's, that's almost a you know, quarter of a century. And here's God saying, you're going to know me 100%, totally. And I just can't even wrap my brain around that. So, so faith, hope, and love abide. Like we need those things right now. We need faith and hope and love. These three, but the greatest of these is not faith. And the greatest of these is not even hope. The greatest of these is love. So what Jesus wants for his church is obedience and love. When those two things are present in the lives of his people, 
Holiness manifests in the church. Holiness manifests among us and in us. And, and, and those are his priorities for us. And then sometimes people speak in tongues and it's like, go ahead. <laughs> She's so cute. I love her. So I'll just wrap up with this poem. I stumbled upon this this week. The author of the poem is unknown, but it was so poignant as I read it. And, and maybe it doesn't apply to you today, but it sure applies to me. And so I'm going to read it, if only for my own sake. But I think this will minister to you. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish that I didn't take time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me? I wondered. And he answered, you didn't ask. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, why child, you didn't knock. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He answered, but you didn't seek. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Let's do that together. Father, we come before you in humility. And what we ask of you is holiness. And that that holiness would spill over into our hearts and manifest in love for one another. Love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for those who are lost and who need you. And mostly love for you. Just, just love that would be focused on you, poured out, Lord. We, just, we ask for these things in Jesus' name. And we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your mercy and loving kindness. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. What the Lord Jesus wants for his church is obedience and love. When those two things are present in the lives of his people, holiness manifests in us and among us. And those are his priorities for us. So as you go this week into the world, take holiness with you. Take the gospel with you. Walk in holiness. And do not fear that which is evil, but share the gospel. Make Jesus known. The day is short. The hour is late. Go in the goodness and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.